Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. One of the most controversial movies of all time was also one of the first blockbusters. D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation was a story about the Civil War and Reconstruction. It treated the Ku Klux Klan as heroes and presented African Americans as little more than animals. While Griffith championed the film as an accurate depiction of life in the post-war South... Others protested the film as a vile, racist movie that deserved to be censored. Nearly 100 years after its 1915 release, the film is still viewed for its groundbreaking movie-making, as well as its racist roots. Today, I will be speaking with Dick Lair about his book, The Birth of a Nation, How a Legendary Filmmaker and a Crusading Editor Reignited America's Civil War. The book was published in 2014 by Public Affairs. In addition to discussing D.W. Griffith's background and his decision to make the film, Lair also reviews the life of African-American journalist Monroe Trotter, who led the fight to ban the film in Boston. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dick Lair. Welcome, Dick. How are you today? Good, Joel. Good to be with you. Uh, birth, the Birth of a Nation, even to this day, is one of the most controversial films ever made. Yet it's still lauded by film historians as one of the best-made films of the silent era. Uh, before we get into the book itself, though, can you discuss your background? Uh, given your journalism career, your writing experience is definitely wide-ranging. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as you mentioned, I'm a, a journalist. I worked for many years at the Boston Globe here in Boston, Massachusetts, and now I teach journalism and continue to write books uh, at Bo- based at Boston University. Um, yeah, this was a, a most of my books and my journalism at the uh, at, at the Globe has um, been uh, uh, I would call it long form investigative type reporting, uh, playing you know mostly current events uh, issues involving um, you know the world which I live in and meaning the Greater Boston area. And some of those uh, stories have uh, ended up uh, between two hardcovers to uh, become big enough for a book. Um, and I'm thinking probably the best-known one being about uh, the gangster Whitey Bulger and his corrupt ties to the uh, FBI in Boston, a book called Black Mass. Um, but, yeah, so this book about um, D.W. Griffith and the birth of a nation and uh, – uh, the civil rights leader back in the early 1900s, uh, a man by the name of Monroe Trotter. Uh, this was something, an altogether new kind of project for me because it's historical nonfiction. Uh, these events occurred um, uh, 100 years ago or more. Um, and uh, for me, that uh, was a pretty exciting challenge. Yeah, I was about to say I've been – you actually wrote two Whitey Bulger books and um... – What's interesting is I just started reading Black Mass yesterday because I do read crime nonfiction too. So it immediately um, I found it interesting. I just 60 Minutes ran a piece of, last year about Whitey Bulger's uh, arrest. And yeah. so I just 
immediately was drawn into that. So it, like I say, though, it was interesting to see you branch out, so to speak, into uh, a different phase of, of writing. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've talked about racial issues before in some of your other material, but why, but why did you take on the birth of a nation and tell a little bit about the David Duke story? And since that becomes sure. a very important part of the introduction to the book. Yeah, well, Joel, you mentioned one thing that's sort of on a big picture kind of idea thematic thing that appealed to me in, in this story, and that has to be, and that has to do with civil rights and civil liberties, um, which are big themes in this story of, about the birth of a nation. And those are kind, those are things that connect up to other books and work I've done over the years. Even though, again, this is uh, historical nonfiction. Thematically, I see a connective tissue to the kinds of things I'm generally interested in stories I want to tell. But how I got into this one, it's, 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 uh, I got in, um, not through the movie, uh, in a direct way. I mean, I'll get to that in a second. But the way I got into this story was through, um, uh, Monroe Trotter. Um, I was, gosh, five or six years ago, um, reading an article that made a reference to a, black civil rights leader in the early 1900s in Boston, and also uh, was also a newspaper editor, uh, published a, a weekly newspaper called The Guardian, which was considered radical for its time. And his name was, you know, and it was about this guy, Monroe Trotter. And here I am, you know, uh, I've lived in Boston for many, many years. I teach in Boston. I've practiced journalism in Boston. And I'm interested in history and civil rights and things like that. And I just was stopped at that moment on the page going, Monroe Trotter, I've not heard of him. How come? Why don't I know this guy? And so it was that curiosity, which I think is, you know, part of the makeup of, of at least any journalist I know. It's like asking, whoa, you know, wanting to know more about whatever might be in front of them. I started to read more into Trotter and discovered he was, a, in many ways, a forgotten civil rights leader because uh, one of the first things I realized was, that in the early 1900s, he was a nationally prominent civil rights figure, uh, mentioned in the same breath as, as you know, uh, people like Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'm going, whoa, this guy, you know, this guy, had, you know, had traction. This guy was a big deal. And so my mind, my book writing mind, starts thinking, okay, maybe there's a biography in this in, in Trotter. One had been written in the 70s, but it's been out of print for years, and it became a tremendous resource for me. Uh, but then I got into 1915 and his sort of reading into his life. And that's when he was at the forefront of this amazing protest against the birth of a nation. Okay. And I knew about the movie. Uh, and so that, that became for me, you know, looking for something to organize uh, around, a, a, you know, storytelling. That became the, the, the way to tell this story is, is this amazing collision and clash between a, a prominent civil rights leader against, um, you know, a pioneering filmmaker, David Wark Griffith. Uh, and when the film came to Boston, um, there, there was a protest unlike any other in any other city. Uh, so I saw that was the drama through which to channel, you know, um, sort of biographies of both of these key figures, uh, a story of film, early film in America, all kinds of cool stuff, but to channel it through this, this collision between these two titans. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I hadn't heard of Trotter, and I actually, am, in my history, I've got a history degree, master's, and in part of my studies, I've been 
much of what I've been looking at is current events and, and civil rights. And, and so I hadn't heard of him. And I said, hmm. when I saw your book, I said, that's what drew me to it was many of the people I've interviewed are, you know, deal with the film part and this right. movie in particular, that part's important, but it's the social part, which is much more important in this story than, than the film. Yeah, the context and stuff. And like I said, I, as I mentioned, I, I was familiar with The Birth of a Nation. Like a lot of people, uh, my first exposure was in college in, in a film survey course. And that's where I saw uh, it first, too. Yeah, it was sort of the anchor of the course. It's sort of where you begin when you study the history of American film. I mean, Griffith is this pioneer in terms of filmmaking technique. And so, you know, I saw it then, the way I think a lot of people are first exposed to it. Um, uh, but then years later, it was interesting. Uh, my second viewing was, was not so typical. Um, I was uh, in my first year in the late 70s uh, as a reporter at the Hartford Current newspaper. Um, and that same, that year, um, David Duke, who... Um, it's the Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, based in Metairie, Louisiana. I don't know why he picked Connecticut. I mean, that'll be a mystery that I'll never be able to answer. But he launched this Klan recruiting drive in Connecticut during the fall of 1979. Um, and not surprisingly, it, it drew a ton of media connect, uh, attention. Uh, the idea that the Klan was recruiting new members uh, was on local TV, local radio. Uh, the Hartford Current, where I worked, was covering it extensively. Um, uh, Duke was giving you know telephone interviews from Louisiana. Uh, he had people leafleting uh, high school parking lots and factory uh, blue collar you know parking lots. And he was giving interview after interview, saying he's overwhelmed with the success of his recruiting drive. Um, we had a front page story that I co-wrote with another veteran reporter, uh, in which Duke was uh, claiming he had, you know, had gotten 300 new members in a matter of weeks, and many more are coming in. So it was like it was kind of a big deal. Uh, and yet there was a sense that you know he's claiming this, but is it real? I mean, it's a secret organization, and and he would not. Um, uh, connect us because we kept asking. We want to talk to your Connecticut uh, leaders. I mean, we want the local angle. We want to find out, you know, why here and why now. But he wouldn't do that. And so, this becomes almost a case study for a journalism class. I, uh, I, using a false identity, submitted the so-called paperwork in order to join the Klan. Um, and in many ways, that's a story for another day. Um, but the bottom line was that Duke came to Connecticut to sort of uh, exploit all the free publicity he was getting. And he, after a day of, of press conferences and whatnot and press interviews, he held a secret meeting with his very meager clan in Connecticut. That was the big news story that we wrote afterwards that I attended under this uh, you know, false identity. Uh, with just There were just about 12 or 15 people there. So it, we, we were able to burst his bubble, so to speak. But, the th you know, long story short, the loop around to the movie is that Duke's idea of a, of a Klan meeting was to pull out the movie, The Birth of a Nation, uh, was real to real then, and to, and to um, give it a, a screening of the movie with his, it's a silent movie, with his, you know, racist narration. Uh, so it was kind of a stunning uh, evening, and that always, you know, kind of, it was indelible on my head that that's when I realized you know, if I connect some dots here in college, I came away appreciating, you know, the filmmaking technique and, and Griffith's sort of artistry uh, around the movie. 
the night I went to a plan meeting and David Duke narrated, uh, the, you know, to the movie, uh, all this racist uh, stuff is when I came away understanding the, the propaganda power and, and the racist impact, even, you know, decades later from when it came out in 1915. Um, so that, that always stayed with me. So, like I said, a few years ago when I'm reading about Trotter and realized that, um, uh, he clashed with Griffith over, um, whether this movie should be played any in Boston or anywhere. Um, I just felt it was a, it was a great drama, great drama and a great story that's kind of uh, lost and forgotten. You would have thought at the time had DVDs been in existence that uh, David Duke probably would have put out a version with his commentary as part of it just to try to get represent his great, quote-unquote, great ideas to everyone else. Um, I know, I know. He probably has, maybe. I don't know. You know that's true. Is. Thankfully, he's not really, you know, he's yeah. gone back into the woodwork. Um Let's talk about Monroe Trotter a little bit more. And I agree with you. It's a name that's probably not known to many people, even especially given his importance in the civil rights movement. Uh, what was his background that led up to the issues with Birth of a Nation? Okay. Uh, yeah, he was, um, um, he, he grew up in Boston. Uh, his father um, and in, and, uh, was a, um, a soldier in one of the all-black regiments from Massachusetts, uh, the 55th. Uh, infantry, um, and uh, after and he was a war hero of sorts, and the father, and also was um, a, a civil rights leader, um, so to speak, in 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 the Civil War. Because um, while those black regiments, you know, fought bravely and and surprised, you know, everyone about about their uh, battlefield capabilities, um, they were not paid equally. Um, uh, to the white soldiers uh, uh, in, in the Union Army, and um, and and also they could not be promoted to officer rank. Well, James Trotter, which is the name of, of Monroe Trotter's father, uh, he and he led and was part of a, a group of, of black soldiers who who argued and fought for uh, uh, equal pay uh, during the Civil War, um, never not fighting the battles and never not. Uh, you know, uh, walking away from the battle, but all all the time insisting and pushing um, that equal rights agenda to the point where um, it was. And I guess this, I think this speaks to both the father, uh, his, his 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 his. He was a man of principle, and, and Monroe Trotter is very much his father's son. Um, to the point where um, uh, the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Governor Andrews. Um, felt horrible, I mean, in terms of his politics and beliefs, that the black soldiers from Massachusetts were not paid at the same rate as as white soldiers, not paid the same by the federal government, the national government. Um, So he pushed through the Massachusetts legislature a bill that would make up the difference uh, in pay for the um, all-black regiments from Massachusetts. And James Trotter was part, and they, they refused. He said, no, we appreciate your your well-intentioned effort and support, but we are national soldiers. We are part of the Union Army, and it is the federal government that is has the obligation of paying us equally. So they, you know, they, that was that. I think that illustr- captures the, you know, how how principled he was. Um, and uh, so that's the stock that Monroe Trotter came from. Um, he grew up in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston, um, uh, which was a largely white neighborhood. Um, he was the only a black student in his high school senior class of about 20 or 30 students in Hyde Park High School. 
everyone else being white, and they elected him president of the senior class. Uh, he went on to Harvard. He graduated um, uh, with honors in, in 1895, and he was the first black Phi Beta Kappa uh, at Harvard. Um, and he saw for himself a career in business, in finance, international finance. But soon after he got out of college, uh, he hit the so-called, you know, uh, color line. Uh, and it didn't go quite as well as he imagined or expected um, based on his um, accomplishments uh, so far in his life. Uh, so in, in his 20s, that became kind of a, a great awakening for him when, when I think he sort of grew into his father's shoes, so to speak, because he, he became radicalized. He got involved in politics uh, when he'd previously shown very little interest in that. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he started showing up at meetings and advocating for equal rights, and eventually that led to um, becoming a newspaper man. Yeah, it's interesting because he actually could have gone and not gone into what he did. He didn't have to be a crusader. He could have probably made a perfectly good life, even though even with the uh, uh, restrictions, he still was doing reasonably well. And yet he felt this was very important. And in fact, of course, early on, the discussion of, of the issues with Booker T. Washington and his appearance in Boston. Right. Yeah. That, see, that's what sort of, um, you know, in, in, at the turn of the century, um, when he was becoming um, more involved in public affairs and whatnot, and his father had died uh, while he was at, at Harvard. Um, and you are right to say that um, his father had done had been successful uh, both as a writer. Uh, he had worked for the post office. Um, he had done, dabbled in real estate. I mean, the, the family was OK. Um, he wasn't uh, broke, and he probably could have managed, uh, Monroe could have managed a career in business and whatnot at some level and been successful. But, um, you know, the fire started burning in his belly, and, uh, and you know, he got involved increasingly in, in civil rights issues. Um, and, and that took him to, you know, sort of analyzing um, and, and, you know, the, the, the prevailing a strategy, civil rights strategy of the day, which was embodied in, in Booker T. Washington and his, um, you know, his, um, what was seen as a conciliatory get along, go along approach, encouraging, um, blacks to, you know, ri- you know, rise slowly and, and learning a trade and, and take it one step at a time and not rock the boat too much. Um, at the turn of the century, um, the very re- the reason Trotter co-founded a newspaper called The Guardian, it was to challenge Booker T. Washington directly as, and his civil rights strategy of saying, no, that's, that's a failed strategy. It's not working. We're, the race is backsliding. Um, uh, the reason he, he saw and, and others commented on this, the, why Booker T. Washington was widely accepted in, in, by white America as a civil rights leader, um, was because in there, in many, uh, in, in the eyes of many white people, he was, Booker was just kind of advocating creating a super servant, as one, as one writer wrote it, um, uh, by, you know, encouraging, you know, blacks to learn a trade and whatnot and be skilled that way. Uh, a lot of whites saw this, oh, great, they, you know, there's a whole population of super servants. You know, they may not be slaves, but they're super servants. Well, this infuriated, um, Trotter, uh, and, and motivated him to start his newspaper called The Guardian and to advocate for a much more uh, direct action um, strategy 
uh, one in, uh, focused on voting rights and higher education, uh, and talked about, you know, these are my words, but we, you know, uh, it's important to get in the white man's face, basically, uh, and, and challenge um, for equal rights. Yeah, because, and it's funny that, well, not funny, it's interesting that the same battle ended up being uh, fought again. It just shows you cyclical history. But in the in the 60s, the same basic concept would slowly start to emerge where uh, the belief was you can't wait anymore. We need to do something now. And there were still people who felt conciliatory was still the best way to handle it, which, of course, turned out not to be true, even as it wasn't true in the turn of the century. Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. And that's that's what I found so fascinating Um but, you know, in this sort of, you know, digging into this, what I consider to be either overlooked or forgotten history uh, of this battle over the movie, The Birth of a Nation, because so many of the issues and themes and are, are like echo through the century, whether it's, you know, this um, fighting within, um, um, you know, the civil rights movement about the, what the best strategy is. Um, and I found it, you know, again, I, 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 like you, I, I hadn't really known much about Monroe Trotter. And and what I did know about American history and civil rights history is that, you know, um, I thought this was, you know, Booker T. Washington's era and that he spoke for black America. And one of the reasons, again, that Trotter formed the newspaper and and became, you know, kind of a, a in-your-face protest advocate was because he was trying to uh, get the message through to white America that Booker does not speak for all of black America. Uh, and that's what everyone thought at that time, because he was the prominent, nationally known, and accepted black leader. Uh, but and and again, there was a white mainstream press where Booker T. Washington would get press. But all the stuff that Trotter was starting to do and, and others like him, uh, they were ignored by the mainstream press. And so you know, there's this emergence of this black press that some of a lot of which Booker T. Washington controlled, but not all of it. And 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 Trotter, Monroe Trotter, represented that growing element in in in, in civil rights uh, that was emerging to challenge uh, the dominance that that Washington had. Yeah, the only other major name that comes out of that period, or actually even later, but is W. E. B. Du Bois and. He's the one that most people remember from that period if you're talking about the more radical um, yeah. civil rights leader. But Trotter clearly, from from your writing, played just as an important role, especially during this early period. Yeah, he influenced he influenced Du Bois. It's, you know, if you start looking at, um, uh, you know, uh, Du Bois's papers and uh, Booker T. Washington's papers, all these archival mountains of archival papers – as, and I was I was going into these I call them like looking for needles in haystacks, looking for trotter needles, going into you know you know you know whatever archive it was I was looking for any and all things Monroe Trotter and if, if because he was my guy I'm riding his back into this amazing story in the early 1900s, and if you do that you realize wow he mentored uh, Du Bois Du Bois who you know like anybody was growing and just as Trotter did was growing evolving. Um, and uh, but Trotter was a little bit ahead of him, and and Du Bois was had worked um, for and with Washington, but in the um, again in the early 1900s, in many ways under Trotter influence, he he moved away and became more radicalized. Um, and and whenever Du Bois they knew each other at Harvard, uh, Du Bois was a couple years older, 
But whenever Du Bois, uh, and he went off to, to teach at other universities, but when he came to Boston, he stayed with the Trotters. They were friends. The wives were friends. Um, so you can't discount that kind of social, social, socializing to have, you know, and having influence and whatnot uh, in the long haul. And it was Du Bois and Trotter and a number of other, um, uh, you know, blacks who were unhappy with, with Booker T. Washington who created the so-called Niagara Movement, which uh, preceded the establishment in 1909 of, of you know, the NAACP. Uh, and that's when, you know, Du Bois, that's what, you know, when he, when he really took off um, to become, um, you know, uh, to replace Booker T. Washington as the nation's most prominent um, civil rights leader. But Trotter played a key role in, you know, starting around 1900 and, and in the next you know, handful of years um, in his relationship with the boys. Well, let's start to talk a little bit about Griffith and the film, mostly because uh, even though you're right, Trotter's the, the main character. Um, he the, the title of the book, The Birth of a Nation, sort of leads us into that part of it. Um, what would... Although many people have probably seen the film now, including people who might be listening to this, but let's talk a little bit. What was so controversial? Why why was this film so reviled for good reason, as it turns out, by so many people, particularly African Americans? Well, Griffith, um, again, what makes him such a pioneer in filmmaking history, American filmmaking history, is that he produced, you know, America's first blockbuster film. This this thing, uh, film was really still a new, new thing, and he took it from what had been Nickelodeon short, one reelers, two reelers, and here he produced this three-hour-plus epic film, and not just about any story, but an epic story, the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, and it was released in 1915. 50 marking, you know, the 50th anniversary for the end of the Civil War in 1865. So, you know, this it's got in, in both in technique and, and and artistry and all that. It's it's like the Star Wars of its era. In so many ways, uh, you know, American audience had never seen anything like it, technically speaking. And then dramatically speaking, they'd never seen anything like it. This uh, again, this mo- this monster this grand drama about the Civil War and, and, and Reconstruction. And so, you know, part one is about the Civil War, and he tells the story in a very, you know, a, 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 you know hum, humane, human way, uh, because it's the story of two families, one from the South, um, the Camerons and, and the Stone, Stonemans from the North. Uh, and they knew each other before the war, and, and the children were friends and, and actually romances and whatnot. Um, so you can really, uh, you know, buy into the story through the people, the characters that way. Um, but the most, and then, and then the epic battle scenes, you know, that he had filmed, and uh, you know, these are just they're historic in terms of filmmaking. Uh, the controversy came largely in in part two of the movie, which had to do with Reconstruction, uh, and 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 the, and the telling of stories of of, of slaves who could vote, free slaves. Uh, free, uh, and also the, you know, the so-called carpetbaggers, the radical Republicans from the North who came to the South. Um, it's, it's, it's Griffith's portrayal of that story that, um, while it entranced, uh, most white audiences, uh, it just, uh, just shocked and angered and just frightened, you know, black America, uh, because Griffith's portrayal of, of blacks, most of whom were, 
you know, you know, white actors in blackface was, you know, treating, uh, treating them basically as animals, um, you know, as some lower form of, of life, uh, whose main interest was getting drunk and chasing white women. Uh, and, uh, so in scene after scene, it's, it's, it's degrading and humiliating. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty awful stuff. Um, and, uh, and again, in the storyline of, of, of part two, um, uh, Griffith, per, you know, portrays in, you know, in this environment of reconstruction, the, um, uh, rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan as, as saviors of, of the South from both these black heathens and also, the, you know, the Northern, uh, control, uh, and, and a, a bit, and the Klan restores justice and order to the old South, um, and that's the birth of a new nation. Without the Klan, there would be no modern life, so to speak. I mean, it's it's uh, it's, it's wild that way. And what's interesting is is that actually, uh, it was considered to, in many ways, especially the issues related to carpetbaggers and and black voting in the South. That was considered to be the normal belief of even historians. They took that to be, you know, what we call the lost cause, and also related to the issues of uh, the Dunning School, where this was the way that period of time was considered by most people. It would so the the film, as bad as it was, probably there were very few people who would have argued that Griffith got it wrong, so to speak, as far as his overall historic history. Yeah, Joe, no, that's, that's a really important point because that's about context. And that's, you know, if, if I've done my job, it's, it's trying to create the social and cultural context for this movie um, uh, and make that come alive. Uh, because you're right, the things that, you know, we would watch today at Birth of a Nation, it would be immediately like, oh, my God, that's so offensive and that's so awful. Um, back then did not, for, you know, I think a majority of America seemed so outrageous. Um, because in that context of the time, and, you know, and you mentioned Charles Dunning, who was a, a leading American historian at Columbia University. Yeah, I mean, his view of Reconstruction was that it was a disaster brought about by, um, you know, the Republicans from the North, uh, who savaged the South, the South and its economy. And also by, by, um, freeing black, uh, the black, sla- you know, the slaves who were, um, incapable and not ready for freedom, uh, both for, uh, a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them because, again, they were kind of a lower form of new humanity. I mean, there's this direct or implied racism in the prevailing historiography of the time. Um, so if you have all these, you know, you know, highfalutin professors at Ivy League colleges kind of spewing out as conventional wisdom, um, this kind of racism, uh, yeah, the movies for a lot of people just react, reflected their, their views. Uh, and compounding it was, um, was you know, science. Um, there were uh, studies in prominent journals uh, claiming to, purporting to show that the, the brains uh, from uh, blacks um, were smaller than the, those from whites. Um, and I and I work with some of those and blend that in and, and braid them into the narrative here that I'm writing because one of those was again a very high and uh, uh, prominent um, journal article. But but um, but I also include that within a couple of years it was debunked and trashed by one of the junior scientists who showed how deeply flawed the study was. Um, 
and because they weren't even doing random sampling of brains and and all that. So I mean, but 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 for, the damage was done. I mean, that was uh, it, it fed into the you know the people's expectations and con- the conventional wisdom. But it's in that environment that this movie comes out. Uh, which again, from a lot of white America, just said, you know, this wow, this is so much drama, and people were on their feet cheering and sobbing, you know, for the again the different characters in the movie without realizing how offensive and racist it was because for so many people it didn't strike them that way. Yeah, um, I think probably, but it was also and 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 you know and and you had Griffith and you know who was a master of embellishment. He was an, his uh, you know amazing self promoter. I mean, he was insisting that everything was based on historical fact and and it's not work i've done but plenty of other historians have shown that you know that that's just not true uh what he you know a lot of the assertions of fact like his 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 scene you know for example you know one of his themes and one of his stuff is that uh in during reconstruction uh blacks took over became the dominant majority in all these in, in south carolina and every other southern state uh um, and were uh, and just again um, were incapable of, of of acting in a civil way and and and, and, and a, as a legislative body, and you know the true numbers just don't back that up in any way. Yeah, there were some blacks elected to public office, but not in the way that in anywhere in anywhere near the way that was portrayed in the film, in terms of the numbers. And that, and not and also not in the manner in which is portrayed in the movie. There's a one of the offensive scenes uh, in the film is showing the South Carolina legislator legislature um, in session um, being uh, controlled by a vast majority of former slaves. And they're just sitting around, kicking back, taking their shoes up, putting their feet up on the desk, passing the bottle, yelling. You know, it's, it's like a barn party or something like that. Uh, and and you have in the corner all you know the minority of of whites who are just looking at at this black controlled legislature in horror and aghast at uh, the incivility of it all you know and you know and that's the kind of racist message that's uh, portrayed throughout the film. Yeah, because I even seeing it the one the first time I saw it that the scene that probably got hit me the most was the scene of the Ku Klux Klan riding off as the good guys. Uh, yeah. I mean, that probably more than anything. And this was, as you, when I saw it, would have been in the 70s. So by this point, uh, the issues of the Klan were well known. And yet Griffith treated them as, you know, the conquering or the crusaders uh, meant to try to save uh, people. And probably more than anything, it was the, the, the part that shocked me about that, knowing what I knew about the Klan. Yes, the film climaxes with the Klan riding to the rescue. Uh, and then, you know, in all of my historical research, which involved, it's, it's, there are so many, you know, reading a lots of newspaper stories, you know, from that time, uh, from the various cities in which the movie was played. Uh, and that's one of the joys of archival research is that there were so many newspapers back then. But article after article talked about how at the climax of the film, when the Klan rides to the rescue, you know, people watching the film were up on their feet, applauding, uh, because the way the you know the plot and the drama worked is that you know, they are the good guys in the context of the film, and they are riding to the rescue. And people who have never seen anything like this on a screen, you know, are are moved to cheer, and and 
you know, again, with the benefit of a hundred years, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, when you read about it or, or as you say, so, see that, to, you know, uh, years later, it's, it's appalling, not, you know, applauding. And, but then this is where Trotter is where, you know, uh, talking about Trotter's importance to this story. Uh, the infamous phrase, banned in Boston, which we used to hear all the time. This is really the birth of that, speaking of the word birth, uh, the concept that Trotter tried to get the film banned in Boston. Yeah, and that's one of the uh, wonderful, um, you know, sort of com- complexities of, of this of this drama, because, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a newspaper person. I'm a big First Amendment guy. And one of the puzzles for me going into my research was, oh my gosh, here you have a newspaper guy, a radical newspaper guy. You would think he would be, you know, wrapping himself up in the First Amendment, and yet he is seeking to ban, censor, suppress, um, you know, what you call free speech and expression, which is the film. Um, and, you know, what's going on here was my question and what, and, and unraveling that and how do you, re- how do, how does, how does try to reconcile you know, suppression and, and banning um, with um, being a newspaper man and, and a radical newspaper editor. And that's, you know, unraveling that it is part, so much about context and so much it is uh, uh, what I do in, in, in the story, in the telling of the story, which is has lots of action in it, but also has these important ideas. Um, and, Joel, you're right to say that in the early 1900s, this sort of, you know, banned in Boston was was a phrase that came into being because, you know, James Michael Curley was the, the legendary mayor of Boston who um, was infamous for going into theaters, and he, he had what he called the barefoot ban. If he saw some dancers or some female actresses um, showing bare feet or, or bare legs, uh, he would shut the... Um, uh, show down, citing you know uh, that it was immoral uh, and and in lacking taste, uh, and he had the authority as the city censor to do that, and that happened widely, you know, wide widely, um, and so you have that kind of dynamic, and you have also um, you know the First Amendment as a constitutional right was uh, was you know a much earlier and and much narrower and less robust version of what we take for granted today. Um, uh, so that's in play, um, you know, in terms of understanding the banning, the effort to ban a movie. Um, the, um, and so it's this great debate, uh, that you see going on, uh, embodied by Trotter and other protesters who are looking to suppress the movie versus, um, Griffith and his supporters arguing the first amendment and, and free speech and expression and art, um, and that's one of those great debates that echoes through the century uh, and into this one, um, because what essentially, um, you know, uh, what and what the book you know demonstrates is that Trotter and 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 his supporters, what their First Amendment argue, argument basically boils down to is that they believe in free speech and they believe in the First Amendment and they believe in a free press, but they don't believe it's absolute, and they didn't. The term hate speech wasn't coined yet. But they were arguing that at some point, um, you know, that that you know that expression becomes so hateful an expression that in more modern times it would be called hate speech that should be um, ruled either illegal or suppressed. That's a fascinating thing to see, you know, in a much earlier version, you know, being 
argued about and debated and fought over and demonstrated about, you know, protested about. So, I mean, I really loved untangling that uh, um, in, in, in all of its context. And the other cool, um, neat thing was that I was also happy to discover that, um, well, two other things, um, that Trotter and also Du Bois was involved in this protest. Um, they were not all, you know, wholly comfortable, you know, with trying to ban the movie, understanding that it was um, an infringement of a civil liberty, you know. Uh, and they understood that um, this, that, that they were losing some supporters who ordinarily, in terms of their civil rights agenda, um, were on their side. But banning something did, you know, involve curtailing a civil liberty. And they were sensitive to that. And in an ideal world, uh, uh, it was interesting to discover that, uh, especially Du Bois, they would have preferred to, what I would say, fight speech with speech. There was an effort during part of 1915 to try to get a competing movie underway that would be the answer to Griffith's Birth of a Nation, that would show what they would, were calling the true story of slavery and then Reconstruction. Um, and they were trying to get that launched off the ground. Um, and as a First Amendment person, that I think is is the better way. Um, but not surprisingly, again, in, in that era, um, you know, uh, you know, black civil rights leaders going around trying to raise money to f- for a film uh, didn't have much success. Uh, so, you know, there's that element, which is I, I found fascinating. And then the last one I just want to mention is in terms of film and this new, new thing, what to make of it, what is a movie? Does it even come under First Amendment protection? There's this great, and this issue went to the Supreme Court of the United States in early 1915, which is, the timing is perfect for the Trotter protest. And the Supreme Court, it was a case out of Ohio, uh, in which filmmakers were challenging Ohio, the state of Ohio's authority to regulate film. Uh, Again, all on this First Amendment stuff. And the Supreme Court ruled in early 1915 that this thing, this new thing called film, does not even fall under First Amendment protection. And I think that's astonishing now in hindsight. Um, but it, 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 the language was, it, it, it said, film is, is, is a business, pure and simple, and like other businesses, uh, is subject to government regulation. So, I mean, you know, intellectually at the time, you had the Supreme Court of the land ruling that this isn't even a First Amendment issue. Um, which, of course, it is. I think, and I think most people would agree with that today. But at the time, at the timing of this, it wasn't even a First Amendment issue. It was about, you know, regulating uh, and controlling, uh, uh, and that's what the fight was fought for over three months in Boston in the spring. It's interesting because we still, to this day, have fights about what's considered protected and what isn't when we're, you know, and it seems like every time there's something new and it seems to be more in the technology age, you know, in the early part of the 20th century as industrialization and as you, as these kind of new communications methods appear, this whole fight has to happen again where we have to decide, is this protected or should there be protection? We've seen it. Obviously it's, like in many things historical, we once again see cyclical activities which are very similar to what happened in the past. Yeah, no, it, it, the trending is is fascinating, and that's the kinds of you know sort of the basis I'm trying I'm trying to hit because and to appreciate that in in the early 1900s, you know, this new medium film, you know, this was a media revolution. Um, 
you know, through a, a film playing in a couple of cities over a weekend could reach more people than a newspaper could in six months, you know, kind of thing. Uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the potential impact on public thinking and public opinion, you know, they, it, it, it was revolutionary. Um, and it was that era's sort of equivalent of, you know, the Internet and the digital age. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. It, it created all these new questions about, you know, what to make of it, how does it fit into constitutional rights like First Amendment protections, all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like you see, you know, again, it's cyclical in, the, in an early version, some, in some ways, dress rehearsals for what came later in, in our lifetime, the digital age, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, at least I, I find that to be an important part of the story and a fascinating part. Before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you, how did you, a little bit of uh, mechanics, how did you enjoy doing historical research as opposed to most of your other works, which tended, which tend to me, as you mentioned, current events and therefore different types of sources? Did, was this an enjoyable per- experience for you? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I really liked, uh, and I never, you know, I've done a lot of documentary, document research and stuff. Um, um, and, uh, but this was almost exclusively that. And the Trotter papers, uh, were, uh, you know, happily at Boston University. Uh, and that was just a starting point, however. And I just liked that it took me into, uh, again, where the Woodrow Wilson papers, the Griffith papers, uh, Booker T. Washington. You know, again, with my angle being Trotter, which is not what most historians are looking for when they dive into, you know, Woodrow Wilson, the Wilson papers, you know? They might be looking for progressive or League of Nations, all kinds of stuff, but it's not looking for what I call my trotter needles. So uh, it was fun to find uh, our Civil War history, uh, the, you know, the, the, the black regiments, uh, looking for James Trotter stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes, or a lot of times, run, you know, running into walls and dead ends and, and coming up empty-handed, but in other instances, oh, my God, look at these letters. That I've never, you know, no one's, you know, really ever written about. It's not like I've, I've found them in a trunk in someone's attic. No, no, they're, they're just in this big haystack that, you know, most people have overlooked in pursuit of whatever their agenda was. That was a fun and exciting, uh, and I really did enjoy it. And, and uh, think, I'm not sure what my next book will be, but I'm certainly wide open to this kind of historical research because I found it so rewarding. Seems like every time I read about a, some people seem to be shocked every time we come up with a new, every time a historian or a writer comes up with a new story and everybody says, how can they find that? And why didn't we hear about this before? And yet it's because there is so much out there doc, evidence that people have never had the time to look at or look at at the right angle like you had to in this particular case. And it really makes a difference that uh, just the, the, the concept of doing research and finding the sources that you feel uh, help to tell your story and, and just doing that as part of the process is what makes, to me personally, historical research so enjoyable and reading good history-related uh, materials because the, the people behind it, you can see their excitement in their writing. Yeah, oh, good. I hope, oh, I hope you sensed it in mind because I was, got really into it and... and uh... Uh, again, this being a largely untold and forgotten story, in, in some ways overshadowed because it was right, you know, the World War One, uh, the 
the European war had, had broken out and was, you know, evolving into, you know, World War One and involving America. I just feel like so much of history, you know, is about that as it should be in the focus and studying that and reworking that. And um, But here was this film revolution, media revolution in which involved this amazing, you know, uh, landmark film and this amazing civil rights, you know, turning point in civil rights history. And it just like so much cool stuff was going on in the mix. And, uh, um, you know, Gay Talese had a great line once when I heard him talk um, about, you know, where someone asked him about, you know, how he came up with his story ideas and whatnot. And he said, you have to have the imagination to see a story. Um, uh, in other words, you know, to see the world around you or the, or the world, you know, in, in the past, in history. And to see a story that maybe other historians have overlooked, it's it's not like you know making anything up or, um, but but I think this sort of plays off what you were just saying, um, um, you, you know, going back and it takes a someone has a particular interest and and then starts pulling out a thread and and keeps pulling and realize that there is enough material archival and otherwise letters um, to build a historical narrative around. You know, uh, that's an exciting uh, experience. And um, what I was going to say was it's good to see it because, like I say, um, you did a great job of presenting that as part of your story, just the process you used and this kind of things that you found. And I think it just shows that it, even as a for, the story itself is great, but the process comes through so well in the book that uh, I think it just did a great job of showing that aspect and your ability to use some of the same techniques that you've used in your other books, but on a historical uh, a study. And it definitely comes through. And I'm definitely looking forward to whatever else you choose to do, whether it's um, historical or more current events again. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Well, I know uh, I really appreciate that you took the time to talk to me. I know for a college professor, this is a busy time of the year. and It is. The fact my grades are due tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to do it, to do the interview. As I say, I found the book to be very fascinating, and and I hope people not only search it out but find the film too. You need to watch the film. Luckily, it's available yeah. on Netflix with the infamous 1931 prologue, in which Griffith basically tries to justify what he did as still being yep. correct. So, um, anyway, thanks a, a great deal for talking to me, and I'm glad we had a chance to do this conversation. Yeah, no, you're welcome. I pre appreciate your interest for sure, Joel. Thank you. I want to thank Dick Lair for speaking with me. I hope you have the time to read his book and to watch the film to gain a better understanding of the importance of the issues raised by the birth of a nation. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.